0: Our scripture today comes from Judges 2, 6 through 19, and chapter 21, verse 25. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, The servant of the Lord died at the age of a 110 years, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. And among them, the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Brenda. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We continue this morning in a series that we have been in the Uh, really in the middle of for a long time now. It's going to take us all the way through the end of the year. We're tracing our way through the Old Testament and just talking about the story God is telling through the history of his people Israel as they journey. Uh, Now we're out of Egypt into the Promised Land. They've now come into the Promised Land, and now we're beginning to look at what, what begins to happen to them once they find themselves there. They're conquering the land. They're settling down. And exactly how the Lord continues to weave the story King Jesus uh, in the middle of the story of his people. Uh, there are a number of things. I want to do something a little different at the beginning. We're, this is one sermon. I have one shot at this entire book of Judges. We're going to do this a number of times throughout this series where we're going to have a whole book uh, where we're going to try to kind of wrap, wrap our heads around the entire book in one Sunday. So you can imagine that's a tall, tall order this morning that we would think about this entire book, which in honest, honestly most of us are not very familiar with to begin with. Uh, But there's some really great themes, there's some really great things that we can see. And and I particularly love this book in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Judges. Okay, But there's a couple of application points I want to make right at the very beginning before we get into the meat of what I want to say this morning. Uh, And we're told, if you'll look there with me, in verse 7, that all the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. But what happens is, is, as you remember, we've been tracing. Moses led the people out of Egypt. Then he was succeeded by this man, the, the general Joshua, All the days of Joshua, the people served the Lord, but Joshua dies, we see, and when Joshua and the generation of leadership that was a part of Joshua's generation died, there was nobody behind them to take their place. So Joshua's death creates a leadership vacuum, and there's nobody behind him to fill it. Now, there's a huge application for us. As you think about our church and what we're trying to accomplish in our city and And uh, in the way we've organized ourselves, I want you to think about just a bullet point application. And that is for a movement like the movement of God's people here or like a church like ours, for a movement to be sustainable, it cannot be dependent upon a personality. It must have a strategy to multiply leadership, particularly in the next generation. And so I hope in the coming years, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, you'll see that strategy of leadership really develop, that we can't build this church over the next 25 or 30 years on on my personality. It's not big enough, first of all. I'm just not a big enough personality to do that. But it's unhealthy for me. It's unhealthy for the organization. There has to be a multiplication strategy of leadership that we've really set ourselves to the work of, because like you see... Joshua dies, it creates a leadership vacuum, and the thing begins to fall apart. You see it happen in organizations and churches all the time. Second thing that happens here, verse 10, is absolutely frightening. In the midst of this leadership vacuum, we're told that there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is the third generation that we've been tracing for the last month and a half now. The the first generation was the generation of people who came out of Exodus who saw God miraculously deliver them through all of the, the, the ten plagues and all of the things that happened there, they walked across the Red Sea, they ate the manna in the desert, they drank the water from the rock, and yet, because of their sin and their rebellion and their, their disobedience, they perished in the wilderness. They were replaced by their children, who was the generation that wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and eventually came in, fought the great war conquered the enemies, built the infrastructure to allow the nation to move forward. And then here's the third generation. And of all of the successes, all of the great things that the second generation did that the first generation didn't do, the second generation failed in this one thing. They did not pass their faith on to their children. And there arose, absolutely frightening, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so... Um, Whitney Houston got it right. The children really are our future. Teach them well. Remember the song, and let them lead the way. And so, I, I, what I want to say is, so the second point of application for us, then, that we can learn right here at the beginning of this book is, is that the chilt that we it, for a for a movement to be sustained over the courses of multi generations, there has to be an intentional and intentional strategy of ministry towards the the next generation. So we have to be a church that that very intentionally and very passionately goes after the next generation so that they come behind us to complete what we have begun. But then uh, the third thing I want you to see, just the third point of application is is what's happening in this passage. Joshua dies, there's a vacuum of leadership, there arises another generation... What this passage is pointing us to something that, that must happen in Israel and that will over the next 500 years or so as the people settle into the land. And it's just this, that Israel has to organize. And both in the, the conquest here and what what most scholars believe about this book is that it was actually written not in the time of the events that it's that it's chronicling, but much, much later after, if you know the story, in a 500, 700 years from now, Israel's going to be kicked out of the land because of their sin. God's going to exile them. They're going to be sent to Babylon. And then after a generation or two in Babylon, they're going to come back to the land. And, and we believe that, this, that these stories, this book is being written to that community of people who's come back from the exile, resettled themselves in Israel, begun to build the temple again, that even in that post-exilic community, there's a need for them to organize, just like every movement has to eventually organize to sustain the growth of the movement, okay? What's interesting is we have an allergy to this. How do do people talk about organized religion in our culture? Yeah. I mean, it's a dirty word. Because we're so cynical about leadership, and we're cynical about leadership because we don't like to be told what to do. And that's the case because postmodernism has done its work on us and we see any attempt at leadership as a power play. We have this deep, deep, deep cynicism to leadership. But what the application that we're going to trace out really throughout the rest of the sermon is, is just this, that what the message of this book to the post-exilic community, to this community fledgling here in the land and ultimately to us, as we think about what it means for us to be a community of people living in a city that God's called us to, the application that I want to talk about uh, together this morning is, in light of Joshua's death, in light of the vacuum of leadership that, that created, uh, the unbelief that seeped into the next generation, and then the organization that, that is needed of the people at this point, the application is just this. We need a king. That's what this book's about. This book is about their need for a king. And you, and you know, Judges, Ruth, and then First and Second Samuel. And it's in First Samuel that the idea of the kingship begins to take hold. And so this book is written to these people to prove to them, to show them their need for a king, and it does so in three, in three ways, or at least I'm going to highlight three ways, uh, and they're the three points of our outline. You see them there for you. Uh, these three ways, the book of Judges makes an argument for a king by showing us three things. First, it shows us what life is like with no king. Secondly, it shows us how the king saves, and it does this by negative example, but and then thirdly, I really do believe the book also shows us who the king is who can save. So what life is like with no king, how the king saves, and who the king is who can save. Okay, so let's look at those three points together this morning, if if you follow along with me. First, under the heading of the absence of the king. So the first way Judges argues for a king is by showing us what life is like with no king. And it's just this phrase in verse 25 of chapter 21, down there at the bottom of that scripture reading that Brenda did for us. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the phrase is repeated four times throughout the book. It's the thesis statement. And whenever you read the Bible and you notice a word or a phrase or a sentence that keeps getting repeated like this, they teach you in seminary, you should immediately think this must be really important. Because it's this kind of repetition. is a literary device that adds emphasis. So the words, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, repeated four times, acts as the theme. It's the theme of the book. It's the thesis statement for the entire book. Why do we need a king? Because when there's no king, everybody does their own thing. Now immediately we have to stop and say, wait, isn't it, that that's a bad thing? I mean, that sounds, that sounds like a good thing, right? Everybody gets to do what they want to do. I mean, isn't that what we're striving for? You're, wait, you're saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. The book of Judges is saying it's a bad thing, and I tend to agree. I remember a few years ago, Rent was playing at Theater Winter Haven, and Ashley and I went to see it. It really was excellent. Uh, it's the only time I've ever been to a show there uh, that was only half full, and I really think it's because it was probably a little too edgy, and maybe Winter Haven wasn't quite, quite ready for it. If you've ever seen the show, you know it's a story of a group of friends who live in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the 1980s, and uh, it's based on Puccini's opera La Boheme, and it's a celebration of a bohemian lifestyle. And bohemianism originally referred to gypsies and to others who were considered cultural outsiders. You know, outsiders and strange to the wider society. But now it's come to refer to anybody who is unconventional or who doesn't play by the rules. Okay, the closest parallels for us, and I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just, I'm just, this is just by, by way of helping us to understand what I'm, meaning by this, the closest parallels for us in, in our culture would be something like artists and hipsters. Okay? And the whole idea is to defy cultural categories and express your own individualism, which ironically, this, this desire to express your own individualism somehow ironically becomes its own subculture. But Rent tells the story of a group of friends who live a bohemian lifestyle. They see themselves as outsiders. They are, their ultimate value is personal freedom and self-expression. They they're sexually promiscuous. A number of them are HIV positive. There's even a drag queen. So you can imagine. And I just, Winter, I mean, I really think Winter Haven just wasn't quite quite ready for that. I mean, you can kind of see the shock. Like, holy cow. Uh, my favorite number in the show by far is called La Vie Boheme. And it's an extended, it's a, it happens in a, in, a, in, a, in a bar at a banquet table type thing. And it's an extended toast. Uh, bohemianism is declared to have died and they they have this extended toast to the death of bohemianism. And most of it is honestly too vulgar for church. Uh, but, but just to quote it a bit, this is their toast, okay? Because it really is fascinating. They say, To days of inspiration, playing hooky, making something out of nothing, the need to express, to communicate, to going against the grain, going and saying, going mad, to loving tension, no pension, To more than one dimension, to starving for attention, hating convention, hating pretension, not to mention, of course, hating dear old mom and dad. To fruits, to no absolutes, to absolute, to choice, to the village voice, to any passing fad, to being an us for once, instead of a them, la viboim. And the song, I remember sitting in the, in the, in the, the show, and, and I really, like I said, I really do love this, this book and, and have been struck over the years by this phrase. The song really is a celebration of the statement in Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a toast to freedom, to no rules, to nobody telling you what you can and can't do, to no right and wrong, and what's behind all of it. Is the idea that any conformity to a rule or a social norm or any kind of expectation outside of anything other than my own value system is a sellout? It's a betrayal of my freedom, of my individuality, because those two are so closely tied together. And, and in this, in this way of thinking, freedom means there's no external authority. Not only can I decide for myself what's right and wrong, but really there isn't anything such as right and wrong, only what is right and wrong for me. And so freedom is autonomy. Freedom is no constraints. And according to the book of Judges and the rest of the Bible, that definition of freedom, which is so clearly defined by our culture, is not salvation. It's actually slavery. When the prophet Isaiah begins to describe the sin for which Jesus died upon the cross. He says it like this. It's our assurance of pardon passage that Jonathan read. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, everyone to his own way. We have turned everyone to his own way. And that sounds a lot like everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what we know is that sheep are stubborn. They're constantly wandering off and getting lost and getting themselves into trouble instead of following their shepherd who is there to lead them and protect them and provide for them. Sheep are notoriously, sheep notoriously overestimate their ability to do life on their own, and so do we. We've all turned aside to doing our own thing, and the Bible says that's not a good thing. Rather... The Bible would say that's the essence of of what God means when he refers to sin. Sin is my stubborn, not to mention foolish, commitment to my own autonomy, to doing what is right in my own eyes. And you can really track it. You can really see it taking foothold in our culture in a number of different places. What you see that happens here, and and it's, I mean, this really is fascinating the way what you can see the transition that's happening here in chapter two of Judges really is a transition that we are currently undergoing in our culture in many ways. You see first that there's a loss of a transcendent story that leads to a radical individualism. So we're told there in verse 10 that, that a generation arose that did not know all that God had done. They lost their story. They lost their history. For the previous generations, there was a master story that gave purpose and meaning and direction to their lives. But here with this generation, without a story, without a story, without knowing who they were and where they come from and where they were going and what God was doing, without that sense of a master story, the individual, the self, becomes the ultimate source of authority. And so the more secular our society becomes, the more individualistic it becomes because secularism is stripping us of a transcendent story. That can bring us together. But not only a loss of a transcendent story that leads to a rise in a radical individualism, there's a loss of a transcendent truth that results in a moral relativism. And So without a transcendent story, there's no such thing as transcendent truth. And with no higher authority than the individual, the process of deciding right and wrong, good and bad is relativized until there is no more right and wrong, good and bad. There's only what's right and wrong for me. And the verdict of the book of Judges is that that leads to chaos. And you can see it. Can't you see it in our cultural moment? Can't you just see the chaos in our culture that this has created? You have Christian organizations flip-flopping, going back and forth on, I mean, it's just absolute chaos. But even worse than that, the ver- verdict of the book of Judges is that this leads to chaos. But that the chaos itself is just a forerunner of what's coming after, and that is Judgment. We have great need to pray. And so the book of Judges is making an argument for why we need a king by showing us what life is like with no king. But then secondly, let's, make a, let's keep going and let's also see how this book argues for our need for a king by showing us how it is that the king saves. And the author does this through negative examples. And that's something you should know about the Bible too. That sometimes the way the writers get their point across is through a negative example. And there's a literary device uh, that the author uses in this book, a cyclical pattern that summarizes verses 11 through 19, if you'll look there. And it is basically this, verse 11, the people sin. Then in verses 13 and 14, we're told that in response to their sin, God sends judgment in the form of a foreign oppressor. So the people sin, God delivers them because of their sin into the hands of a foreign enemy who comes and rules over them and oppresses them. Then we're told in verse 18 that in this case, and, and, you know, and, 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 and ensuing in the book, the people, as they're under this harsh oppression, they, they experience some form of repentance where they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And because, because God loves them and because His mercy is great, He brings salvation, usually through a figure called a judge. And this is a cycle. They sin. God judges them in the form of a foreign oppressor. They cry out to him for deliverance because it's so hard. He brings them salvation through a judge. And this forms the basic outline of the book. And what happens, if you know this book, you know it happens over and over and over again as this book goes on. It's just this cycle that just continues again and again and again and again over the span of 400 years. And the result is they're stuck. Four hundred years after three in three generations, they've gone from slavery in Egypt to conquering the land to now settling into their inheritance. And then, yet as soon as they get there, they spend four hundred years in the spin cycle, going around and around and around through this through this cycle over and over again. They sin, God sends judgment. They repent. He brings salvation through a judge. It goes well for a time. They sin again. He brings another oppressor. They repent. He bring, and it's just, it's just around and around and around. And I wonder, do you know what it feels like to be stuck? Have you ever had your tires spinning in the mud, but you're not getting anywhere? And if you haven't, you live in East Pole County. You need to go get that done, okay? That's part of living here. In your fight with sin in your own heart, in the dynamics of your marriage, or organizationally in your work, do you know what that feels like? you know the pain? Do you know the pain of being stuck and never feeling like you're getting anywhere? And if your wheels are spinning like that you can't seem to get anywhere or worse. If it feels like the trajectory of your life is on a downward spiral into spiritual apathy or relational conflict or distance what the book of Judges would tell you is you need a king. Let me explain what I mean. If you're stuck spiritually it's an indication that you've been doing what's right in your own eyes for so long. What's happened is, is your sin has created a rut. Or Somebody else's sin has created a rut. And again, we East Polk County people know what a rut is, right? How does a rut happen? A rut happens if a path gets too much traffic. If you keep going over the same spot over and over and over again, eventually it develops a rut. And sometimes the rut can get so deep that once you're in it, you can't get out. And so we say, I'm in a rut. What do we mean? We mean that we can't get any traction towards change. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said that sin... Sin works like that in the soul. He said it leaves a mark on the soul that makes it a little easier to commit the same sin the next time. So sin creates spiritual ruts. And if you've ever been stuck in the mud, like really stuck, you know that there's nothing you can do to get yourself out. You've got one option, and it's shameful. You have to walk the, you know, the walk of shame to the phone, call a friend who's got a truck or a tractor with enough power, tie yourself to that vehicle, and then their power pulls you out. That's the only way out. It's the only way out. I know from personal experience, and I have a 4 by 4 it's terrible, right? But it still happened to me. It's the only way out. And according to Judges, the only way out of the cycle of sin is through the work of a king. The only way out, the only way out of the ruts that are created by our insistence on doing things our own way is the work of a king. Now what is it about a king? And we have to answer that question because the image is so lost on us in our Western democratic context. We don't have kings anymore. So what is it about a king? Why is a king so important? How does a king save? And our shorter catechism answers those questions for us by teaching us that Jesus' work as our king is this. Here's the phrase. And this, this really is powerful, and it re- I really should land on you. I, and I hope it does this morning. But the catechism says that Jesus' work as our king is, is this that he, that he is working by his spirit to subdue us to himself? That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Do you know what that means? That word subdue means to overpower or to conquer. And so what the catechism teaches is that God saves by conquering our selfishness and producing in us a willingness to obey him and not to obey our own desires. And the thing about a king is, when there's a king around, you don't do your own thing. If you do, you don't do it for very long. And if you continue to do so, it's off with your head before you can even blink. You, do, you obey a king. You do a king's will, even if it crosses your own will. And so the Bible says to have a king is a good thing, not a bad thing. To have a will, outside of your will, that you must bow down to, is a check on the selfishness that has gotten us into so much trouble to begin with. We need a king, because having to follow the orders of a king keeps us from the ruts of sin and selfishness we would otherwise produce. Let me give you an illustration from my own life of this. I grew up in churches that were very autonomous. And I and when we started to talk about planting a church, I wanted to be autonomous. What that means is, is I, wanted, I wanted to be completely free to do be completely free to do things the way I wanted to do them without any outside intervention. What's so seductive about leadership in autonomous churches, which many of us had experience in these churches, what's so seductive about leadership in those churches is, is that as the leader, everybody's under your authority, but you're not under any authority. So you get to tell everybody what to do, and nobody gets to tell you what to do. Now, who wouldn't want that gig, right? And I remember a sermon my... The guy that I call my pastor, Tim Rice, who's the pastor at Trinity in Lakeland. I remember a sermon he preached. I do. It was almost like a conversion moment for me. And he said that the root of sin is the desire for the freedom to do whatever seems right in our own eyes. And when he began to talk about that, God shined a spotlight on my soul, and I came to realize that I needed to be under authority. And that what you most needed is for me and the other pastors and the elders of this church to be men who, even as we... Exercise authority are under authority. And I remember at one point there was a meeting, and basically I I really didn't want to be Presbyterian, and these guys were telling me it was going to be good for my heart, and I didn't believe them. I literally, I remember meeting at Starbucks on South Florida about six months after it opened, so about ten years ago or so. And I remember walking away, and I got in my car, and I'm not kidding. These guys were just pushing me on this stuff, pushing me, pushing me. I got in my car, and I was so angry and so upset. I I got in my car and sat there, and I literally couldn't drive because I was shaking. Because I realized what was happening. I realized that I was losing control. And that I would, in some cases, not be free to do the things that I wanted to do. That in moving in the direction that we moved, that we as a church, and I in particular, in my role, are less free to do my own thing. But can I be a friend and tell you, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Freedom... Not autonomy, rather biblically, freedom is the ability to do and to be what you were created to do and to be. Do you hear that? Freedom is not autonomy. freedom is the ability to do and to be what you were created to do and to be. now, just as an example of what I mean by that, my son a year or so ago brought home a fish from science class that was supposed that he was supposed to observe for a project, and the fish nearly died two, two hours into the project. One of our girls knocked over the jar that he was in, uh, in the kitchen. And uh, I actually called in the middle of the melee, and, and uh, Ashley came into the kitchen and with the girls screaming, and the flit, there's the fish flapping and flopping on the f- floor helplessly, right? So the fish was doing what he's supposed to be doing, but all it was accomplishing was making the girls scream and making it difficult for Ashley to scoop him up and get him back in the water. A fish is built for the water, not for little puddles on the kitchen floor. And because he was out of his element, see... Then even the exertion of his strength, all of his flopping and thrashing around, all they were doing was injuring himself and making it harder for the people trying to help him. But eventually, Ashley got him up, got him back in the water, and see that the water is his element. The water is the thing he's been made for. Outside of the water, when he swings his tail back and forth, it's flapping and flopping, but in the water it's gliding because only when he's in the water is he free. Freedom is not autonomy. Because we've not been created for autonomy, we've been made to live and to know in dependence upon the One who created us. We've been made to live under the loving authority and control of our King, in obedience to His will, and to do your own thing, to be wise in your own eyes, to ascribe to your own personal version of the truth. That's like living as a fish out of water. You'll flap and you'll flop around. And I remember, I remember living, leaving the theater that night after that show. And thinking for all of their conviction and celebration, I remember, I remember I walked to the car and I really loved the performance, but Ashley and I looked at one another as we pulled out of the place and we were, it, we were just so sad. There was just such an aftertaste of hopelessness and despair. Because you see, freedom is the ability to do and to be what you were created to do and to be the only way God can make us free is to conquer our proneness to wander, as the hymn says, and to replace it with a love for the sound of his voice calling us to follow. The psalmist sings, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord. Your commandments are sweeter than honey in my mouth. In other words, oh, how I love for God to tell me what to do. For God to save you and I means... More than just forgiveness, it means that he is powerfully working to rescue us from the thing that's destroying our lives. And what is that? The thing that's destroying our lives is our constant turning aside to our own way. That's what's wrecking us. So then the third thing, and I need to come to a close. The third thing that Judges does, not only does it show us what life is like with no king, not only does it show us in in brief form what, what the work of the king is to get us unstuck, but thirdly... Judges does, uh, does this. It, it proves our need for a king by pointing us toward the true king. You see, being under the rule of a king is a frightening thing unless it's the right king. It matters who the king is. And the king we need is definitely not any of the judges in this book. If you're familiar with these stories, you know it's not Gideon who was a coward. It's not Abimelech who was a tyrant and power-hungry. It's not Jephthah who was worldly and abusive. It's not Samson who was addicted to pleasure. None of the characters in this book are the king that we need, And it's not your husband, it's not your wife, or your father, or your boss at work, or the president, or any political party, or political leadership, because all of those people are flawed and sinful as well, and are prone to abuse their power over you, or to selfishly abdicate it. And it's definitely not me, or the leaders of this church, or any religious leader for that matter, because we are far too much like the negative examples in these stories. But what we have to be very careful not to miss is that this book is pointing us towards someone very specific. For uh, thousands of years, the book of Judges has been paired with the book of Ruth, which we'll look at next week, and they've been grouped together as, as one literary unit, even though they're separated in our Bibles. Uh, the, the, for, for centuries, the church has put these two books together, Judges through negative examples of the Judges, and then Ruth through the positive example of Ruth and Boaz, and then ultimately the king that would come from their family, and the book of Ruth has two endings, uh, and we'll look again, we'll look at this next week, but for our purposes this morning, there's a dramatic ending where Naomi, who's one of the main characters in the book, is holding her grandson in her lap, and we're told that his name is Obed, and that he, if you know the B- Bible's history, you know that Obed was the father of Jesse, and then we're told that Jesse is the father of who? Anybody? David. And then the second ending comes, and in the second ending, it's a genealogy, and the final words of the book of Ruth are this, Boaz, fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. So Judges Ruth leaves you thinking about David because in the mind of the author, David is the kind of king we need, a man after God's own heart. But of course we know, because we know beyond these stories to the rest of the story, and we'll look at this later on Easter Sunday actually, that when David comes upon the scene, even he's flawed. He uses his power to rape and to murder and to lie. And so the Old Testament as it goes along, points even beyond David to David's greater son, the Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ, called in the Gospels, the son of David. Jesus is the king we need. And so let me bring us to a close by talking about both his person and his work very, very briefly. Jesus is the king that we need because of his person. Because unlike Gideon, he was not a coward Unlike Abimelech, he was not hungry for the crown. He laid aside the crown of glory for a crown of thorns. Unlike Samson, he traded in pleasure and comfort for a cross. See, that's the king that we need, one that's sacrificial and kind and humble. Jesus did not go his own way. He did not do what was right in his own eyes. He didn't live for himself. There's no selfishness in him whatsoever. Where every other king has failed, he is true. He lived his entire life with one goal. To love the Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love you and I as he loves himself. And he lives in heaven now with the same purpose. And that's the kind of king you want to serve. But not only his person, also his work. Because Jesus was obedient to the Father with no exceptions all the way to the cross. Because he never, not even for one iota of one second, turned to his own way. He is the only person who is able to subdue our hearts. He alone has the power to overthrow our sin and selfishness and to produce in us a joyful obedience to the Father's will. He is the king who, by his spirit, at work in our hearts, can save us from the thing that is killing us. No other king can do that, but he can. So let me just finish by saying this. Give your heart to him. Put your life in his hands. Here's my appeal to you. Every other king subdues their enemies with power, but Jesus subdues with love. Every other king seeks to conquer so that he can have control over the one he conquers. Jesus wants to conquer you, not so he can control you, but so that he can set you free. Are you stuck? Tie yourself to him, because only he has the power to pull you out of the ruts of sin that you've created. It's a dangerous prayer he teaches us to pray, and yet he tells us to pray it. Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come, and may your will be done in me, in my family, at my work, in our church. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray as we prepare to come to this table this morning. Lord Jesus, you are the one who has come to subdue our hearts to yourself, to set us free from the poison in our soul that, that seems to us, To be freedom, which is actually slavery, it seems to be the good life, that we would be free to do whatever we want, and yet the very thing we consider the good life is the very thing that is killing us. And so, would you begin your work of subduing us this morning by convincing our heart of the truth of that, so that we might turn to you in repentance and faith, and come to this table... To receive from you the gracious provision of your kingship in our lives, your very body broken and your blood shed for us. Here at this table you would quiet our hearts against all the the oppositions, the way that our hearts would rise up against the idea of being ruled. Here it is, here, in this display at this table of the great love that you have for us. Here is where you would subdue us. And so come, even as we gather now, to eat this meal together and do just that. Make us a a people who would say with the psalmist, oh, how we love your law. Oh, how we love for you to tell us what to do, because we know that your words are life and truth and freedom. And so come and work in us, we pray. And we pray in your name. Amen. 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 Part of being a people who uh, have been subdued... And who are joyful in their obedience to the king that they serve is a prayerful gratitude and a joyful obedience to all of the authorities uh, under which he has put us uh, in in our lives. Whether it be children to their parents, whether it be workers to their bosses, whether it be uh, church members to the leaders in their church, whether it be citizens to their political leaders. That we prayerfully are grateful and we joyfully obey uh, not them, but them as unto the true king. Now, where in the world do you get the power to do that? You have to hear this benediction and know that the one who is put, whether they're people who abuse you or, or mistreat you, even then there is one that, that is over even those types of kings in your life who raises his hand, as I do now, over you to bless you. Trust him. Put your faith in him, and you'll find the strength you need. To be obedient in all the places that he sends you. So receive the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.